Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. The monsoon officially ended yesterday, but was all the rain a good thing? This week we look at what all the green now means for the future. The 2021 monsoon was one for the record books, with rain falling across southern Arizona until the last day. As we approach the end of the monsoon, the Tucson airport, where precipitation is officially recorded, had logged just shy of 13 inches of rain during the summer rainy season. Normal is between 5.5 and 6 inches of rain. In contrast, last year's monsoon was called the nonsoon by many people because there was so little rain. Officially, only 1.6 inches of rain fell at the airport. The winter, southern Arizona's other rainy season, was also dry. So how common is it for a bad monsoon and a dry winter like the one we had to be followed by one for the record books? Dr. Kevin Anchikitas with the University of Arizona Tree Ring Lab says tree rings give us a lot of information. So uh, using tree rings, we can actually go back um, in some places here in the West uh, many thousands of years. So there are trees living up in the White Mountains of California, for instance, that are nearly 5,000 years old living. And then if you look around on those same landscapes, you actually see trees that are down and dead uh, that were themselves 5,000 years at some point. So you can actually go back in some cases uh, 10 or 11,000 years. When we get sort of further south here into Arizona and New Mexico, we don't have quite that kind of age. But in many places, we can go back over a thousand years. So that means we've got trees, um, both living and dead, that have annual rings. And when we um, measure and date those rings, we can actually go back into the, the first millennium. Um, what's particularly exciting here uh, in Arizona and New Mexico is because of our uh, two rainy seasons, the winter and the summer, uh, trees see or respond to both of those seasons. So they start growing based on the moisture that accumulates in the winter or even melting snowpack. And then as we all know here, we get into the dry four summer, things get uh, pretty dicey if you're a tree and, and they start to shut down. And then the monsoon comes and they put on some additional growth. And it's that additional growth that we can use to separate the winter rainfall and the summer rainfall, which is pretty unique around here. So we can actually get a vision of uh, changes both in our winter rainfall, but also the North American monsoon. I think people might be surprised to know that the detail you can get out of a tree ring, you can look seasonally, that you can see winter rainfall versus summer monsoon rainfall. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people uh, realize that we can get that level of detail. And actually, new techniques are allowing us to go in and look at cell by cell. So every one of those rings you see is composed of usually dozens of cells in a row. And we can actually go in and look at individual cells now. Um, so studies like that are being done up in the Catalinas by my colleagues at the Tree Ring Lab. We've gone all the way up to the tree line in uh, Alaska and Canada, uh, where we can actually uh, study the influence of sudden cooling following volcanic eruptions. So uh, our ability to look seasonally and even finer scale, monthly or, or a few weeks at a time, is really advancing. Um, and we can really start to pull out these finer scales of how climate varies. You started looking at data focusing on last year, as many people refer to it, the non-soon, and asking how often we've seen that dry monsoon and a dry winter like we had. How often has that happened? I think like a lot of people, uh, scientists and everybody else, uh, after our terrible monsoon, our failed monsoon 
last summer and then going through a dry winter, I think a lot of us were pretty nervous. Um, and so I started wondering, well, well, how often does this happen? Um, and because of these reconstructions of both winter and summer rainfall that we have uh, here in the West, um, I actually dug in and, and asked the data. I said, okay, well, how often has Southern Arizona um, seen a consecutive 10% uh, driest monsoon? So basically the worst of the monsoon like we saw, and then uh, the driest of the winters uh, consecutively. And actually, if you go back to the year 1400, and we're pretty confident we can go back that far, you actually see 17 examples of this. So somewhere around 2%, 3% of uh, all years uh, that we looked at actually had a, a dry summer followed by a dry winter. Um, so it wasn't uh, as rare as I thought, but it's definitely not common, right? In over 600 years, just 17 times. So we have to ask, this year's monsoon has been really great by most people's standards. How often did you see a really dry monsoon and dry winter followed by what we've had this year, a pretty good monsoon? Yeah, so that became the new question. Um, went from worrying in April and May if we were going to have a, a triple uh, dry season, um, which has only happened uh, twice that I saw in the record. Uh, and suddenly we're talking about uh, one of the uh, wettest monsoons uh, since the early 20th century. So how often does that happen? And um, we are calling this whiplash, uh, monsoon whiplash, because yeah, going from a 10%, right, lowest 10% uh, terrible monsoon in one year to one of the wettest. And we found only two times that that had happened since the year 1400. Um, so the one that really stood out was uh, 1613 and 1614. Um, actually, uh, 1613 was dry, not only here in the North American monsoon region, uh, but you could see that, that California had also really been dry. Now, they don't get a lot of summer rainfall at all, um, but it looks like that year that California was suffering like they are this year. So 1613 might have been uh, pretty similar to last year. But then 1614 rolls around, um, an incredibly wet monsoon uh, that year. Uh, top 10% of all wet years um, that were seen uh, since 1400. So these whiplashes do happen. The other time we saw was uh, 1708 and 1709. 1708 was a failed monsoon. 1709 came along uh, and was really wet again. So you can see 100 years there. Um, the closest thing we've sort of had more recently uh, was 1989 and 1990. So it wasn't quite as extreme as this year or uh, 1600s or the 1700s. But uh, 1989 was sort of somewhere around two to three inches of monsoon. And then 1990 came along with 10 inches. So not as extreme, but uh, still this sort of whiplash event. With the tree ring history that goes back so many hundreds of years, is there any way to predict? Is there any pattern you can see in this? We used to have this idea that uh, if you had a uh, wet winter, you would have a dry monsoon and vice versa. Um, it was sort of uh, something we saw in the middle of the 20th century in records that there was actually this seesaw. And there were different ideas about why this would be. Uh, one idea was a really wet winter uh, with all that snow delayed the, the heating of the land and so slowed down the monsoon. Um, the other idea was uh, the influence of uh, Pacific sea surface temperatures uh, on how the monsoon and winter rainfall develop. But actually using tree rings, um, my colleague Dan Griffin, who uh, is now at the University of Minnesota, uh, was able to look back and see that actually that period where we thought we had this sort of seesaw of wet and dry 
uh, was sort of unusual. Um, it was just apparently coincidence. It comes and goes, these periods, these few decades where we have this um, back and forth between wet and dry. These dual season droughts, like we just saw last uh, summer and into last winter, um, do happen. Um, and uh, they're not always as severe as we've seen, but it's not uncommon to see that going back in time. So it's really one of the uh, strengths of the tree ring record is it gives us this much longer time period and it gives the climate system, including our monsoon, sort of time to do other things and go through this whole range of behavior and variability. And we wouldn't be aware of that without the, the hundreds or, or even thousands of years provided by the tree ring record. That was Kevin Anchikidis with the UA Tree Ring Lab. The monsoon was a boon for more than just trees and the local water table. One of the five seas that traditionally supports Arizona's economy is cattle. Dr. George Rule, the Marley Chair for Sustainable Rangeland Stewardship at the University of Arizona, says this year's monsoon couldn't have come soon enough for the industry in southern Arizona. It's been a blessing for ranching in Arizona, um, particularly coming out of last year's non-monsoon and a fairly dry winter. Um, so this summer's monsoon probably saved many Arizona ranches. And if that's an overstatement, it at least saved their cash flow. When you say it saved ranches, how did the monsoon save the ranches? Well, by producing forage for grazing and for uh, by providing drinking water for livestock, filling up. The rains were, were heavy enough and um, dispersed enough that they also filled the stock tanks out on the range, so providing drinking water for livestock. But most ranches had reduced their their herds by at least 30 to 50 percent going into last winter, um, and they'd been feeding and hauling water since since last fall. Some of them, and that at a cost of thousands of dollars a day. So this summer monsoon provided relief from all of that. You said that a number of ranches, most ranches, had to reduce their herds 30 to 50 percent. Were they able to grow the herds back up some this year, or will this be a number that will be maintained for a while? It'll be a number that's maintained for a while. It takes, it takes time to increase these herds, um, either naturally or through purchasing replacement animals, at least the cow-calf operations. So it takes, you know, and sometimes it takes generations for, for these ranches to build up the, the herds to the, to the numbers they want and with the genetics that they, that they want. In talking to ranchers, you said it saved some ranchers. Were there a lot of them who were right on the edge? And if we hadn't had a good monsoon this year, that was it? A lot of ranches were, were really hemorrhaging finances because of this because of the ongoing drought. And this, uh, this summer has provided at least temporary relief from that. Will we see higher beef prices because of the drought and the bad monsoon as this continues to trickle forward? You know, the numbers, at least in Arizona, are down. I, I think really a, bigger influences are, are packing plants, um, COVID issues, the, the supply chain beyond uh, beyond the, the barn door, so to speak, for, for ranches. You mentioned COVID. That's a real double whammy for ranchers. A dry season or a dry year, really two seasons, 
and COVID on top, that must have been really hard on the industry. Well, the spring of 2020, COVID shut down some large packing facilities in the in the West, in the United States, and uh, really the the bottom just dropped out of the of the beef market. It, it it's it's rebounded some, and for the most part, these plants are back online. But it was, you know, this this hit Arizona ranchers right when the drought was coming into its just a real fierceness, and and uh, people were being forced to sell cattle at the absolute bottom of the market. That was George Rule with the Sustainable Rangeland Stewardship Program at the University of Arizona. You're listening to the buzz. The 2021 monsoon is officially over, ending with rain across southern Arizona. This week, we're taking a look at what a monsoon that is recorded on the positive side of the record books means on a larger scale. Southern Arizona's annual summer rains have a tie to the fire season that often comes before them. Dr. Don Falk in the University of Arizona Fire and Restoration Ecology Laboratory says a great monsoon, like the one we had this year, could cause fire problems in the future. That's absolutely right. Let's even back up a step before the monsoon, which is everybody's uh, obsession because it was so wonderful. Um, Let's glory in it. But let's remember we had a fairly dry winter, and that was kind of depressing. Nobody wants to think about it. Um, historically, the winter rains have come and gone with the with El Nino, La Nina um, variation. Uh, but the the importance of a dry winter is that you don't get much fuel production in the spring, and of course, fires need fuel to burn. So we went into fire season with kind of below average fuel density, and that helped us a lot because. When the fuel production is high, you've always got the potential for something really big to happen, as we saw in 2020 with the Bighorn Fire. Last year, the 2020, for the year, I think we had about 2,500 fires in Arizona. And as of about a month ago, uh, we'd only had 1,100. We had a much lower fire season this year. Does the monsoon contribute to that? It contributes hugely. Basically, in the monsoon climate, Uh, the arrival of the monsoon, and by this I mean the actual elevation of the uh, humidity in the air and the cooling of temperatures and some changes in the wind. When the physical monsoon arrives, it drops down the fire spread potential hugely. It's, It's like a door slamming on the end of the fire season. Now, it may seem ironic because with the monsoon also comes lightning, right? And we do actually often see an increase in the number of fires, at least for some part of the monsoon, but they tend to be small. And what we're concerned about, obviously, are spreading fires. It's not so much a question of whether there are little spot fires all around that are staying small so agencies can put them out or they just go out on their own. We're concerned about spreading fires and spreading fires are rare during the monsoon itself. Now, there is one other thing about fire season, though, even though the monsoon pretty much slams the door on spreading fires. The fire season is getting longer in the other direction. Fire season is starting earlier and earlier and earlier. So this year we had spreading fires in January and February. That's not completely unheard of, but I will say that that's becoming more and more common. So 
it used to be that the agencies could kind of relax until we got into the four summer, our arid four summer, when there really was more fire behavior activity. Now we can have spreading fires very early in the spring. And that's why that dry winter was important because although there were fires burning, there wasn't a huge amount of fuel production around to burn. So we got lucky. You've mentioned fuel production. So many people have marveled at the Catalinas being green, and you can see that all over Tucson. Of course, now as the rains diminish, they'll go back to brown. Does this predict potentially a big fire season next year? So the answer to that question of whether the fuels produced this summer will still be around next spring depends partly on how those fuels decompose. So when we say fuel, we're really just meaning the parts of plants, especially the foliage, leaves of grasses and shrubs and trees, and then trees, the shed needles on the forest floor, small branches, all these things that can burn very easily. It often surprises people to learn that fire behavior is driven almost entirely by fine fuels. We would think that it's the the big giant branches and stems of trees that are burning. After a big fire, those are usually still there. A crown fire is mostly burning leaves. And a a fire like the Bighorn Fire, just pull up in your mind your mental image of that, what that fire looked like. It was just burning foliage. And after it had had gone by, the trees, the dead trees, were, were still there. So this fine fuel dynamic is really very consequential. Would they still be around uh, next year. Part of it depends on the winter. If uh, the, we have a wet winter, that hence, tends to hasten decomposition of uh, plant material, dead plant material, and that helps it to, to decompose and enter, become part of the soil, which is, of course, it's a really important process. Um, I'm not going to make a prediction because we, it really, we don't know about the winter rains yet, but I would say that uh, it's very possible that the fuels produced in this exceptional monsoon were so super abundant and so extraordinary and yes, so lovely that um, they could be a factor next spring. They could still be in the picture. Let's talk history. I know you and your colleagues have looked at the, the historic record of monsoons and fires in Southern Arizona. What have you learned? So we uh, use tree rings to study fire history in the borderlands that is southern Arizona and New Mexico and northern Sonora and Chihuahua. And the reason we chose that is that it's a core monsoonal area. So it's an area where fire and tree growth and a lot of other things are influenced by both winter and summer rains. Until very recently, we only had a reconstruction of winter rainfall to work with. So we knew a lot about um, uh, the various indices that track winter rains. And we could see that that was capturing some of the variability year to year for how much area burned. But we knew we were missing something really uh, important. And colleagues at the Tree Ring Laboratory here at the University of Arizona um, finally produced a monsoon reconstruction. It was a really important uh, leap forward. Well, it turns out, looking at multiple mountain ranges over many hundreds of years, that the winter rains still are a very, very powerful influence, probably because of this fuel production uh, uh, component that we talked about earlier. But the really big fire years were the years when the monsoon was weak or delayed. 
just as you would predict. And it's just what we were saying earlier, that if that monsoon doesn't come along and slam the door on the fire season, then it keeps going. You've had plenty of fuel production. It's hot, dry. And if you have a week or delayed monsoon, you get a longer fire season. That was Don Falk with the UA Fire and Restoration Ecology Lab. Everyone celebrated the rain this monsoon, but for some people there was one burning question. Why are there so many bugs? For that answer, we turn to entomologist Dr. Katie Prudick. The short answer is we had a fabulous monsoon. So there's a lot of bugs out because there's a lot of green things to eat. As you've probably noticed in your backyard, there's lots of weeds, um, also known as food to many insects. Um, and so that's where they're coming from, is there's just a lot of plants out there that, that were happy to see the rain. And when plants are happy, insects are happy. One of the things I noticed a lot of were flies, which is something we don't see a whole lot of in Tucson. They don't eat plants. Why, why are they out and about? Things are decomposing, right? So flies eat dead material, and with water comes more decomposition. And those are fly snacks. Is uh, Yeah. I like that. Fly snacks. (laughs) Maggot snacks. The other thing that people have been asking about, uh, I'm sure everybody has asked their neighbors, their friends, you, about these big yellow caterpillars, again, that we don't normally get. Are they tied to the monsoon or is there some other cycle um, like cicadas? Um, And what do they become? Yeah, those are... um... Manduka, probably, uh, the sphinx moths. Uh, you probably know them if you have tomato or pepper plants. Okay, so where are they coming from? Again, it's, it's, they are most insects, you know, in the Sonoran Desert uh, come out in one of two seasons. One is the spring season with the winter rains and the other is the summer season. We have the joy of two springs in this part of the world is the way I look at it. And so they come from, you know, just a lot of plant material out there. Uh, some of them feed on datura, some of them feed on tomatoes or peppers or their relatives. And so there's just, with the rains this year came more snacks. And so they're here and they're doing really well. And they're um, just able to, to make a lot of babies and chew on your plants. Does that mean that as the rains sadly end that, all of these insects are going to go away? Well, you won't see them. They are still there. Insects hibernate like bears. I know this doesn't really, people don't think about this, but in the winter, they're hibernating until the spring rays come. And they could hibernate um, in egg form, in caterpillar form, uh, in pupa form, if it's a holometabolous insect, meaning it has complete development, like a beetle, a fly, a butterfly, or an ant or bee. Um, those bugs, that's how they do it. Uh, or they can overwinter as an adult. When it comes to all of the insects and bugs that we're seeing, if they're here because of the wet weather, does this mean if things dry out for the winter or next year's monsoon is not so good as this year's that we'll see fewer of them, even though they many of them have hibernated, as you've said? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the population size of insects, so how many you see and who you see is, is always dependent on how much precip we get. And those, that rain comes in two different times, the winter rains and the summer rains. And so some insects, if we get a good winter rain, we might have, you know, a good spring crop of, of insects because there's, there's good plants. And uh, when you have good plants, you have good bugs and then bugs that eat bugs. 
Um, and then when we get to fall, you know, you need that goose, great summer rains. So what we expect to see moving forward with uh, a warming climate is sort of periods of really wet where we get lots of plants and, and insects and then periods where we don't and we don't see as many. And that sort of seems to be tracking with what we've seen in recent times too over the last five years. Is there anything that has surprised you as an entomologist as a result of the monsoon? Yes, I would say who has done really well has surprised me. So I'm a butterfly specialist. Um, and so we've seen a lot of what we call pierids, your white and sulfur butterflies, particularly the sulfurs. Like I think everybody I know has been like, what is this yellow butterfly? And there's been a lot of them. Um, but there hasn't been as many swallowtail butterflies, for example, like uh, the giant, the Western giant swallowtail, which as a caterpillar feeds on your citrus trees. It looks, looks like a little piece of bird dung. Um, they're not doing as well. The, I haven't seen as many um, pipevine swallowtails, another swallowtail. Uh, you know, a few of the brush-footed butterflies, your nymphalids seem to be doing really well, like your queens or your um, uh, emperor butterflies. I've seen a lot of. Those are the ones that feed on hackberry as caterpillars. So you'll see the males sitting there um, perched on a hackberry, ready to attack anyone who, who walks by. Um, they're doing really well, but uh, other ones just aren't. They aren't there as much. Um, so I think that's what's been surprising is who is able to respond to this monumental rain and who hasn't. Is some of that, for example, not seeing the swallowtails or they may be just being crowded out by the ones like the sulfurs that we're just seeing so many of? Yeah, so they don't feed on the same things as caterpillars. That's usually your your resource limiting uh, thing is, is caterpillar food. So your leaves and your flowers and your seed pods and roots and whatever part of the plant they're specializing on. Uh, swallowtails feed on a different set of, of plants that may or may not be as affected by the rain, the vast amount of rain. Um, and so, or, you know, they may have some other things, some diseases or some parasitoids or predators that are, are you know, just sort of influencing how many individuals you see. That was entomologist Katie Prudick. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all of our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Megan Myskowski helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.